Fantastic. Thank you, Sharon. And also thank you to Andy and Josh and Kat and others who've taken part so far this morning. Uh, good morning. My name's Charlie. I am the other minister here, and it's great to be with you. And as Andy said, we are continuing our series, sermon series looking at the life of Paul. And there is an old story, a, a, a joke, or maybe an anecdote is better because it's not that funny. But there's an anecdote that I've heard preachers use before. It's a story of this. Uh, a, a, an elderly gentleman is lost in London and he needs to know how to get to Paddington Station. So he hails down a cab and asks the taxi driver, excuse me, but could you, could you help me? Could you tell me how I get to Paddington Station? And the taxi driver sucks through his teeth. Oh, you want to get to Paddington? Well, I, I wouldn't start from here. Sorry, I told you it wasn't that funny. Um, where you start from sometimes is actually quite an important question. In the 1990s, Windows was the dominant force in home computing. And uh, their marketing message, their message to the world was, we have this wonderful new technology. Look at these clever ideas we've come up with. All of these new innovations. And then there was another computer company, Apple. And they started their marketing from, what is it that you want from a computer? You want it to look beautiful, to be fun, and to be easy to use and intuitive. You see, Windows started their, their marketing. Their starting point was from where they were and their clever ideas. Apple's marketing started from what the consumer wanted and the consumer needed. And it's arguable that, amongst other things, this strategy led to Apple overtaking Windows in the personal computer market because they started from where the customer was at, not where they were. And Paul, as we'll see, is very good at applying this principle as he preaches the gospel of Jesus. But more of that later. In telling Paul's life story, we are currently in his second missionary journey. He's moved from Asia over to Europe. And last week, as Andy was preaching, he's arrived in Thessalonica. And he was with uh, Timothy and Silas, preaching that Jesus is Lord, and therefore Caesar is not. And today in our story, Paul leaves Timothy and Silas in Thessalonica and makes his own way on to Athens. Now, Athens was everything that you imagine it to be, as exciting as it sounds. In fact, as exciting as it is today to perhaps visit Athens. It's a city of culture, of philosophy, of religion, and of you know, thought in that part of the world. Um, I don't know if you remember the excitement of visiting a city you knew a lot about as a kid. Um, I remember as a nine-year-old my first trip up to London town to go to the Natural History Museum with my family and arriving in Paddington Station, this great palace where the trains arrive in. Or perhaps as a 21-year-old visiting Seattle just when grunge was at its height and visiting downtown Seattle where all that had come from. Um, a bit like that, Paul must have been excited to visit Athens, this centre of philosophy and religion. And Paul is more than capable of holding his own with the philosophers in the town. You know, he is a, a, a polymath, a keen thinker, 
um, versed in Greek philosophy as well as his own tradition and others. So he's more than capable of holding his own in this city. And as the story tells us, he ends up at this place. This is the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus had been part of Greek culture for half a millennium by this stage. Previously, it had been the highest court, the place where disputes, serious disputes were settled in the city, particularly murder. And there was a rule. You can see it's a rock. It's a big stone in Athens. And there was a rule that no blood could be shed on this rock, in the, on the Areopagus. So it was tried for, for trials for murder and other serious offences. But by the time we get to Paul, it has become a, bait, a place of debate. It's where the philosophers went to hold court, where anyone could go and listen and learn from those who were speaking. Perhaps a, a little bit like Speaker's Corner in London these days, but, but you know, maybe a bit different to that. But that kind of idea. And Paul heads here and he begins to preach Jesus and anastasis or anastasis. Anastasis means uprising. That's a literal translation. It's still used in Greek Orthodox churches to to speak of the resurrection. It's the word they use for Easter Sunday morning, the anastasis. And Paul is preaching Jesus and Anastasis. And it seems that the philosophers have got the wrong end of the stick. They think that Paul is preaching two new rival gods, Jesus and Anastasis. Perhaps a male and female pairing, we don't quite know. But they've got this strange idea. So Paul changes tack. And he says to them, I've seen a statue in your great city. A statue to the unknown God. Now, that's not unusual because in many cities around the time, as well as having statues to their pantheon of gods, they always had one to an unknown god just to cover their backs, just in case there was a god they weren't offering uh, worship to, that we, you know, just play, play, play their cards, play it safe. So Paul draws their attention to this statue and says, I've come to tell you about this unknown god, the one god who made all that there is who created, who redeemed, and who sustains it and is saving it through this person, Jesus. And you know, it strikes me, it's one of my favourite stories in the Bible. Acts 10 and Acts 17 are two of my favourite points in Scripture. And it's just a, a fantastic example of interfaith dialogue, how to approach another religion You know, rather than going in all guns blazing with everything that you disagree with, everything that's critical, everything that they're doing wrong, you find a point of connection, find a point of common ground and begin the dialogue there. Start where they are at. And boy, do we need that today more than ever. Not only are we living through a global pandemic, not only have we had the fiasco of the American election this week, although, praise God, it went the right way, but... You know, we also, if in case you missed it this week, the UK terrorism threat was raised to severe, as if we didn't need something else to worry about. And, you know, behind terrorism is an interfaith dialogue, perhaps, that has gone badly awry and badly wrong. Boy, nowadays, more than ever, do we need to be able to reach across religious divides and find places of commonality. You know, one day, perhaps if the elders will let me, I'd love to get an imam or a rabbi or a lama come and interview them and speak to them here and get their perspective on life just to hear and understand what others think. But we'll debate that one day.
So Paul is holding court in the Areopagus and he explains the faith. And there are, there are philosophers there, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And, and I had a big section in this sermon about what Epicurean philosophy and what Stoic philosophy is and how Paul addresses both those two concerns with his speech. Uh, you can look that up online or give me a call and we'll talk about it some other time because there's not, there's not space for it today. But, but trust me that Paul's speech is tailored to, to draw in both the Epicureans and the Stoics and to draw them into the conversation. He picks a middle way through both of these philosophies. And I love the way Eugene Peterson, as usual, renders the conversation or his address. So Paul took his stand in the open space of the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It's plain to see that you Athenians take your religious religions seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed to the God nobody knows. Well, I'm here to introduce you to this God so that you can worship intelligently. Know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, well, he doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures and the creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and he made the earth hospitable with plenty and time and, time and space for living so that we could seek after God not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. Can't get away from him. He's calling us for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything will be set right. Interestingly, that was the Hebrew idea of judgment. We often think of judgment as wagging your finger and people getting their just desserts, you know, being punished for what they've done wrong. Actually, a Hebrew understanding of justice, of judgment, is, is a putting right of wrongs. It's a making, you know, putting right, repairing what's been damaged. And he's already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. And of course, he's speaking there of Jesus. And some are intrigued and some want to hear more, but others are mocking him for this idea of the resurrection of the dead. And very quickly, it appears in the narrative, he moves on from Athens to Corinth. Perhaps things went south. I don't know, perhaps he found Athens not to be a fertile place. You know, sometimes I really do wonder if actually our intellectual arguments can get in the way of us finding God. We go round in circles and we, we come up with our clever theories and our clever ideas and actually it can become a barrier, a way of pushing God away rather than allowing him to come close. And I do wonder that the church didn't appear to take off in Athens. And I wonder if it's because of that climate. It just wasn't fertile at the time. So there you go. That's today's story and Paul is moving on and we'll join him in Corinth next week. But there's a few things I wanted to draw out very quickly from today. And the, the first is this observation about how Paul starts from where the other is at. He is a master at doing it. 
um, you may be aware that he picks up um, a, a young, young man on his travels that he mentors, a man called Timothy. We've just left him in, Thessalo- um, in Thessalon- Thessalonica. Paul insists that Timothy become circumcised to start his ministry with him. What? Why? Don't you remember a few weeks ago in Acts 15, we we recounted the story about how he said circumcision is not necessary. So why is it all of a sudden when he's won that argument that he tells Timothy he should be circumcised? Well, it's simply that Timothy is joining him to reach out to Jews. He is going into the synagogue and he is reaching into that culture. And in order to be heard and understood and given a platform in that culture, he needs to integrate into that culture. He needs to become as a Jew. So, Timothy, if you want to do this, we're going to go into this place and we need to meet them where they're at. Which I think is why he makes that move. Or consider head coverings for women. You've heard Paul say there is no Jew nor Gentile, no male, no female, no slave, no free. He seems to have a very inclusive approach to ministry. And yet he is insisting in various places in his letters that women should cover their heads Why is that? And is it something we should do today? Well, my argument would be that actually, if you went to visit an Arabic country today, as a woman, you would cover your head out of cultural respect for that country. Uh, We've seen uh, Theresa May did it when she visited the country as um, British Prime Minister. She didn't need to, but she did out of respect for their culture. And I think that is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, women, if you want to be part of the church and understood... and and included in this, then we need to be part of the culture around us, not to create barriers, not to create difficulty. So ladies, continue to cover your heads. Cover your heads when you go into church or into the synagogue. Nowadays, to be culturally relevant, you would do the exact opposite. So in order to have a platform today, women don't cover your heads because it's the heart, it's the spirit that animates the action that's important, not the action itself. So it strikes me that Paul is a master at starting where the other is at. And he puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 9. I became like a Jew to the Jews to win Jews. I became like someone under the law to the people who are under the law, even though I am not myself under the law. So the Jews were under the law. So he becomes a Jew also under the law, although he's now a Christian and liberated from some of that so that I could win those under the law. Or to the lawless, and I guess there he means the Gentiles, I became like someone who is lawless, someone without the law, a Gentile, even though I'm not lawless before God, but under the Messiah's law, so that I could win the lawless. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. To the weak, I become weak. I've become all things to all people, so that in all ways I might save some. I do it all because of the gospel so that I can be a partner in its benefits. I think that paints a really clear picture of Paul's strategy in Acts 17, to start where the other is at, to have a concern for reaching them rather than us pushing forward or him pushing forward his great new ideas. So what about us? What about us as a church? Where do we start from? Where is our starting point as we meet, as we gather, as we gather online these days, as I preach, as we minister? Who is the church for? Is it for me to have a platform to stand at the front and spout my theological ideas at you? No, probably not. 
If you're a member of Bessels Green Baptist Church, is it for you to be cared for and fed and nurtured? Well, in part, but no, not really. Is it for those who are yet to be a part of our church community, those beyond our doors? I would suggest that that is primarily who the church exists for. Uh, Church family, members at Bessels Green Baptist Church, uh, we are the staff in this organisation. We are not the customers. Now, uh, don't, hear me, don't, don't hear me wrongly. In looking after your staff, it's an important thing to do. <laughs> you, know, you need to care for your staff. You need to nurture and develop your staff. And they need to be equipped to do their job. But you're not primarily what we are about. You are not our customers. This famous quote from William Tyndale, the church is the one institution that exists for those outside of it. So these days, particularly as we put our services together online, who are they for? What is our purpose? Um, friends, if there is anyone there listening who's not a member of Bessel Green Baptist Church, we are really glad you are here. We, we are doing this for you because we believe in something that is so life-changing and so important a, a, a way to live well in the world in relationship with God through what Jesus has done. And we want you to hear that and to be changed because we, we really truly believe that it is a way to the wholeness and fullness of life. That is why we exist. And that is why we're glad that you're joining us. Secondly, and very quickly, as we head towards 11 o'clock. We live in a divided world at the moment. You may have seen this slide from a sermon a couple of weeks ago. We live in a world that is, that social media is dividing, the echo chamber of social media where we have our own ideas reinforced and the other gets pushed further and further away. We are becoming more and more divided. Whether it's politics, whether it is religion, whether at the moment it's the priorities of the north of the country or the south of the country, whether people think that lockdown is a good idea or a catastrophic idea, we are becoming so polarised and divided in our opinions that I think the message for us today is how do we find the other's perspective? How do we start our dialogue from where they are and seek to build bridges rather than incite division? So my challenge for you today, if you happen to be watching this in North America and you're a Democrat, find a Republican. Spend some time with them. Ask them what their fears are, what their concerns are, what they're worried about. And let be that be the starting point for a dialogue that we might build and restore relationships that have been so broken by what's going on in the media and in our world at the moment. Um, if you're a committed Christian, do you know somebody from another religion, another faith tradition, that when we're able to, because we can't at the moment, but you could go for a long walk with and ask them, tell me about your faith. Tell me about what it is you believe. How do you understand us? How do you believe us? How do you understand and perceive us? And then over that conversation, you'll have opportunity to talk about, well, this is how I see and understand the gospel. Find somebody from a different political party, someone who voted for Brexit or Remain. Just let's spend time starting where the other is at and reaching across the divide. 
And finally, and my last point, just to wrap this up and bring it home to land. So often we are tempted to recruit Jesus onto our team. As if in the transfer, he's the new super striker who's going to solve everything for us, fight for our team and help us to win. You know, I hear that attitude sometimes from some people as if Jesus is on our side, reinforcing our agenda and our ideals. I don't think that's where God is to be found. God is to be found in the gaps between us, in the relationships between us, not when we claim him for our views. None of us has an exclusive claim on God. God is not a thing to be used. God is the one who creates, redeems and sustains this whole thing. God is what unites us as children of God, as brothers and sisters in a common humanity. That is Paul's starting point for his dialogue in Athens. The God in whom we live, move and have our being. What a place to start. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a fractured and divided world at the moment. As people of faith, help us to be bridge builders and healers. Help us to reach out across the divides, to listen to others, to to seek to understand more than to be understood, to seek to console more than to be consoled, to be people who will bring peace and understand from the other's perspective and put them first that we might heal this world and make you known far and wide as we do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.